Are you looking for inspiring conversations about faith, film, and life? You're in the right place. Here's the host who knows the right questions to ask, Father Edward Looney. I've been mesmerized lately by the stories of several different holy men and women, young and old alike, who have causes for sainthood. And today we're going to be speaking to a relative of an individual with a cause for sainthood. We will be speaking with uh, Joe McGivney, who is related to Blessed Michael McGivney, and we'll hear how Blessed Michael McGivney plays a role in his own life story. So I'm very excited for this conversation. I've read the, the biography of Blessed Michael McGivney, parish priest, uh, many years ago. Uh, I don't have many recollections of his story, except I remember at the time when I read it, it being very moving and maybe a text that I that I should and would be worth revisiting. So today I'm speaking with Joe McGivney because he is the author of a new book called You're a Miracle, and uh, it's published by Surrender Publishing. And the subtitle, I think, will be of interest to, to people. Uh, My Story of Alcoholism, Miraculous Healing, and God's Infinite Power and Love. So we're going to hear how God powerfully acted in the life of Joe. We're also joined by his wife, We'll also share as well. So thanks so much to the both of you, uh, Joe and Nicole, uh, for joining me today. Thank you, Father Looney. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. So maybe just first things first, your last name is McGivney. There's an American parish priest, Blessed Michael McGivney, could be St. Michael McGivney one day, founder of the Knights of Columbus, uh, which is in many parishes, how are you related to Blessed Michael? Um, my great-grandfather and Father Michael are believed to be second cousin. Um, my, my grandfather was born in County Cabin, which is a, a very sparsely populated agricultural and rural part of Ireland. And he was born in a little village uh, by the name of Kilnalek. Um, Father Michael's dad, was born in a little village called Drum Killy, which is two miles from Kilmore. So they, you know, the best we can tell from genealogy on the records that are available these days is that they were more, more than likely second cousins. Uh, in your life then growing up, uh, did you have an awareness about Blessed Michael McGivney or at that time, maybe just Father Michael or maybe Servant of God, Venerable, whatever his title would have been, uh, did you have an awareness of him within your family ethos? We did. Um, it, it, it always, you know, some of the older devout Catholics in our family were aware of, you know, the fact that we were related. Um, it became, a, I, my awareness happened uh, after the book Parish Priest was published uh, about Father McGivney's life. And I think he would, I don't know if he was yet venerable at that point or not, I'm not certain, but uh, that was, I became aware of the link probably about 20 years ago or so, right after that book came out. Sure. Was it those moments where you saw his name and you're like, oh, uh, he's got the same last name as me or people talked about him before that too? Yeah, the... um, at the time that I learned of him, um, the truth is I was not practicing my faith. Sure. Um, I, 
it really other than you know i used to joke that you know when my judgment day comes you know hopefully i can you know say hey I, i've got a guy when you know father michael you know i'm related here we are your wife is sitting next to you uh could you just share a little bit about maybe how the two of you met fell in love became husband and wife so joe and i met back in 2008 and um we actually had met at a mexican restaurant i was uh, actually out one night with my girlfriend seated there you know at a high top um, in the bar area and in walks joe sat down by himself. He was watching whatever was going on sports-wise on the TV and he was eating. And my girlfriend nudged me and she said, oh, Nicole, check him out. So I, I looked over and, you know, I thought he was attractive and anything and everything rather. And we, um, you know, carried on with dinner. I then went to the bathroom and on my way walking back from the bathroom, um, Joe and I, you know, locked eyes and, you know, we, we just looked at each other and we could tell maybe there was an attraction there. So we sat down, finished up dinner. It wasn't until we were in the car, parking lot, pulling out of the spot, then out walks Joe walking down our aisle. And my girlfriend encouraged me to, you know, say something to him. I wasn't driving, I was in the back seat of the vehicle. And so the car stopped and my girlfriend rolled the window down and I called him over and I said, hi, and he was very friendly. And of course it was an ego boost to him. So it was a you know, car full of girls. And um, he said, what are you doing after this? And I said, we're going to the yard house, which is our next stop. And, um, you know, the yard house is a lively place. It's a, it's a bar, it's a fun hangout. Um, so we arrived and closed the deal with like, you know, I, I'd love to see you outside of here. Um, at some point. And so he got my number and I was really excited that he got my number and, and that was it. And then he followed through. He said he was going to give me a call um, within a couple of days. And he did. This was on a Friday when we met. And then um, he ended up calling on Monday to set something up for the following weekend. And from that point forward, we were inseparable and we had, just had so much fun together, a lot of things in common. And, you know, we just enjoyed very thing, you know, the same things in life. And um, it was it was really a, a beautiful relationship. Well, that's great. So um, you mentioned being at a Mexican restaurant. And so, of course, we know Mexican restaurants are lots of different uh, alcoholic drinks from Corona as a beer to um yeah you, you know to some of the tequila drinks uh whatever they might be right so margaritas uh, i know some mexican restaurants have fishbowl margaritas so obviously a part of your story uh joe is is kind of overcoming alcoholism and and the role that alcohol played in your life so um as you the two of you began dating then eventually got married um you know, what was that role of alcohol in your in your dating life, married life? And when did you realize you had a problem? That's a really good question. So, um, you know, I my alcoholism, you know, began when I was a child. Uh, I started my love affair with drinking began the summer before I began in eighth grade. Um, and it progressed it, like most alcoholics. The disease 
continues to progress over time. So I went from being a weekend warrior when I was in high school to then starting to drink every day in college. And then once I entered adulthood, um, I, don't, I don't know if I can remember a day where I didn't at least have a drink. Uh, it's not to say that I was falling down drunk every day because I wasn't. Um, I was a very highly functioning alcoholic. Um, I, you know, was very, had a very successful career in the financial industry. Uh, I, you know, had actually been previously married and had two amazing young adults that, well, at the time, young children from my first marriage, um, which probably was, you know, my drinking would certainly played a role in that. But anyway, so with, with, with Nicole and I, um, you know, during that honeymoon period, I guess you could say I was drinking like a gentleman, you know, and it, 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 there was nothing to excess. And then over a period of time, you know, suddenly it started to reveal itself to her here and there. But in spite of that, we got married. Uh, we were very, very happy together. But um, as the years went by, my alcoholism again is progressing and progressing. And then I started um, becoming a, a blackout drinker on weekends. Mm. And I, I'll never forget always the shame that I would have waking up, you know, in a alcohol induced stupor, you know, early in the morning, not remembering whether I had been good to Nicole that night or whether I had been bad to her that night. And let me clarify, by bad, I'm, there was no physical abuse or anything like that. I was just sometimes just very, you know, short and obstinate and difficult. Um, so anyway, so that continued for a while until it did. Uh, my blackout drinking really started taking place every single weekend. And Nicole, you know, had continued, tried to, you know, encourage me to stop and you know, made it clear that she wasn't going to put up with this forever. And ultimately, I chased her off and uh, we, we divorced. Hmm. So after a period of time, we kind of worked, came back together again. We started seeing a therapist and I wasn't willing to accept that I had a drinking problem yet. Um so we reached a, a kind of a detente. We had an agreement that I would no longer get drunk. I would drink like a gentleman. No more blackouts, no more wondering the next morning what had happened the night before. And that worked um, until it didn't. And my fears and anxieties over what's going to happen to us, you know, how long is COVID going to last? How are we going to pay the bills? I've got a kid in college, one on the way. And, you know, most people, I think, you know, in order to get through that period, turn to their friends, turn to their faith. I just turned out because I, I didn't want to feel anything. So during that, that COVID period, beginning in March of 2020, I literally had vodka flowing through my body and my brain 24-7. From the moment I woke up to the moment I either passed out or fell asleep, call it what you will, there was alcohol flowing through my brain the whole time. So as we moved through 2020, I started uh, exhibiting some balance issues, some 
inexplicable you know, double vision and so on. I saw some doctors, I was having memory issues and no one connected the dots of what was really happening. And then on December 30th of 2020, that was a very pivotal, pivotal, pivotal night in my life, in our life. We had gone out to dinner that night. We came home, Nicole had gone to bed and I continued drinking down on the living room sofa and my body completely gave out. I collapsed on the floor. Apparently I had, and by the way, I have no memory of any of this. The next phase of this, the next nine weeks, probably best to let Nicole share what happened because I have no, I have complete amnesia of the entire period. So on December 30th that night, she managed to get me to the first hospital that I would spend some time at. You know, maybe it's a good time to turn it over to Nicole to explain what happened next. Yeah, I just didn't know what was going on with him. I was just so frightened and it, it was just, it made me a nervous wreck, you know, to see him just deteriorating and essentially being so self-destructive, really. So, um, you know, I took him to the emergency room that fateful night and I initially thought maybe, you know, he was having a stroke or are they going to diagnose him with like some sort of brain mass or MS or I didn't know what. So basically, you know, they took him there in the emergency room and, and that was it. I mean, it was COVID and, you know, I, I went home and wasn't able to you know, continue to go back to visit him in the hospital because of all the COVID protocols. So, um, you know, they, they realized um, that he, um, you know, wasn't walking right and his um, just skills of like feeding himself and dressing himself. I mean, that all just kind of like, you know, went away. He was very incapable. And so what was happening is, you know, just the alcohol took over essentially in his system. He was having withdrawals from alcohol being in the hospital and um, they had gone through like the whole detox aspect to try to make him well, but he wasn't improving whatsoever. You know, he had so much alcohol in his system that essentially his brain was rewiring and um, he was suffering greatly with these bizarre like neurological effects and physical effects. And so um, he had gone to, you know, institution, institution, like he, he was in one um, hospital for the first six weeks, it was Jupiter Medical. And then from there, he had gone to rehab and it was just like, he was in and out of like hospitals and rehab facilities and nothing was getting better in his situation. It was just, it was very touch and go. It was scary. Um, I thought this is like the end of his life, so to speak. And this is what has happened as a result of consuming so much alcohol. I mean, he's literally mm -hmm. like killing himself or, you know, it just, they, it, it, I mean, it scared me so much. I mean, I was consulting with doctors often and um, they had said, you know, this is probably how he's going to be the rest of his life. And this is going to be his baseline, essentially, with, you know, bedridden, non-functioning, um, you know, incapable of doing things on his own for himself, like needing assistance constantly. Um, and 
hallucinating. I mean, his his mood swings. He was very combative and um, very aggressive. You know, he had to be tied essentially to his bed. He had arm restraints. He had a roll belt around his waist. He had ankle restraints. He had to have a babysitter when he was at these different facilities, like literally 24 seven to oversee because he was a danger to himself and to others. So it um, it was very horrific. And I mean, just so, so devastating. This beautiful guy with so much goodness and so many wonderful qualities. How could he possibly do this to himself? And not to mention not only him, but like how it impacted our marriage, the ripple effects. It affected his children, just everything, everything because of drinking, because of drinking. And I just never understood why he couldn't just stop, you know, and, and walk away and, and turn his desire to drink just off. I just, I never understood that addictive, you know, personality, so to speak, you know, I just, I, I don't have that, you know, in me as a part of, you know, my trait, um, as far as having an addictive personality. So it was just so heartbreaking for me to watch him go through this. It was so, it was such a dark period, such a sad and lonely time for me. I mean, I was devastated. And then trying to you know, communicate effectively to family members and, you know, keep going at work. I'm a teacher. And so I was trying to run my classroom as best as I could, but I was a mess and I lost all this weight and heat as it is. I mean, I was down to 89 pounds. Um, and anyhow, back to the situation there, he eventually, like I said, he had gone from institution to institution, finally ending up at the locked psych ward at this one last stop his hospital there. And that's when I was told specifically by his physician overseeing the case that he has something called Kornicki-Korsakoff syndrome. And um, basically that's like the most extreme, you know, state, um, like kind of near like end stage um, case as far as like alcohol because because of all alcohol related and you can speak more to that something so yeah so what yeah. what had happened to, um, i had progressed to the very worst form of that syndrome called korsakoff psychosis and when when you reach that diagnosis the structures in your brain literally have changed mm. and uh, of a hundred people 20 of them died. And Nicole most likely saved my life that very first night when I collapsed by getting me to the hospital. Otherwise, I probably, she probably would have found me dead on the floor the next day. So now I'm in this locked psych ward. They've confirmed that I have full-blown psychosis. psychosis. So of 120 of them die, I got through that, but that leaves 80 people with the diagnosis that will spend the rest of their lives that way. There is no cure. There is no coming back. So when Nicole was told, look, we're going to release him. We're a hospital. He can't stay here anymore. We've got to find a home for him. And Nicole, by the grace of God, found a place locally that agreed to basically give her 30 days to find my permanent 
they agreed to hold the sanction. And I was discharged from the locked psych ward directly into that uh, treatment facility that was going to hold me. As far as we can tell from the medical records, because again, I have no memory of any of this, they put probably put me to bed. And then the following morning, I woke up fully cognitive. I'm in a room, there's a dresser, there's a window, and there's a nightstand and a bed. And I'm like, where am I? But I was completely healed. I went from being full-blown psychotic to normal. But that, that never Wow. So long story short, I wake up in this institution and I wander into the hallway. And first person I saw, I was like, where am I? And he said, well, you're at the retreat. It's, you know, the treatment facility. And, he, and I said, why am I here? He said, well, you're here because of your drinking. And I said, oh, okay. Well, over the next few hours and then during that day, I came to learn they had to rush me to the hospital because my blood pressure had dropped. Um, and they, that it dropped to a dangerous point. So even though I'm now healed and normal and speaking, they rushed me to the hospital. The hospital calls Nicole and says, hey, you want to come see your husband? And I remember the call. I was sitting right there. And she, sure enough, you know, she was shocked. She couldn't believe it. And she, I remember seeing her walk into the emergency room and I'm in a gurney sitting up making jokes. She, you know, literally like she had seen a ghost and long story short during that brief visit we had I, she gave me kind of an overview of what had happened to me but i couldn't even process it none of it i couldn't believe what she was saying long story short they, they stabilized me my blood pressure medication they gave me was you know all it turned out i was just dehydrated they sent me back to the treatment facility and about a week and a half later, um, we, we had a call scheduled with Nicole. Again, it's COVID, she can't come in and see me. So in that phone call, I could tell by her voice when she answered the phone that it was not gonna go well. And she basically said, Joe, I'm so happy you're, you're normal and you're healed again. You have no idea what you've been through and what we've been through. But when you get out of that treatment facility after your 30 days stay there, I will have left the house. I've already packed everything up. I've already talked to a lawyer. I just can't do this anymore. And the therapist tried to, you know, interrupt the call. And he said, Nicole, let's let's hit the pause button. We'll we'll schedule another call. And she interrupted him and said, There will be, there won't be another call. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. She hung up. Hmm. Well, in that moment, I I felt for the first time in my life what it meant truly meant to be broken. The woman I adored and loved more than anything in the world, um, because of my drinking, had finally, and I could hear in her voice, it was done. It was over. So I am literally sobbing. The therapist looks me in the eye and he says, Joe, there's an, an AA meeting beginning in five minutes and you have to go. Well, AA meetings were optional to get them. And I pushed back. And then my, you know, I had a few words for them that I won't repeat, but he stayed persistent. 
and he coerced me to go to my first ever meeting with Alcoholics Anonymous. So I walk in the cafeteria of this treatment facility. There's about 50 people sitting around cafeteria tables. And they started, like most AA meetings start, by reading the 12 steps. And step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. Like, I'm still crying, by the way. And I'm like, well, I, I think I qualify for that. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than us could restore us to sanity. Now I'm thinking again. And then step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. I was late. I suddenly, the rest of the steps that they read, I didn't even hear them. My brain, my heart said, there's a solution here. I can make a decision to turn my life and will over the care of God. And I briefly felt this moment of relief, and then I became a little terrified. Like, wait a minute. Why is God going to want to help me? I had turned my back on decades ago. Not because I was mad at church or mad at God. I was just so flawed and so selfish. I didn't see what was in it for me to participate in the church and, and live my faith. And then and I very quickly learned by working through the 12 steps that God would take me home. That if I figured out how to surrender my life and my will to every day, not only would I be sober, but my life would transform, change, and it did. So soon after that, um, I finished my, my time, 30 days in that treatment facility. I, on the way out the door, the woman who was doing my discharge paperwork said, Joe, what's your plan? And I flippantly said, don't worry, I got this. She shook her head and she said, and this was a, a beautiful God moment. She said, Joe, you don't got this. God may have healed you physically, but you're still an alcoholic. And I'm going to challenge you to promise yourself two things. One, with immediately after you get home, I want you to pull, open your laptop and Google surrender prayer in all caps. She did that on her computer and showed me the screen and showed me this beautiful long prayer. I have a copy of it handy here. That is a Catholic prayer, as it turns out. She said, start praying every day. So when, when these words on the page will start having meaning very soon. I said, okay, I'll do that. Number two, she said, when you get home within 24 hours, you find an AA meeting on the outside and you start looking for a sponsor. And I kept both of those promises. So I walked into my empty house. I found the surrender prayer. I got to an AA meeting in my life. Hmm. Well, this is a testament to God at work. And, you know, even in that first AA meeting, seeing how God is there, how even in just the reading of the steps, you can, you begin to realize I can hand my life over to God. I, I'm curious, maybe two things. The first thing, uh, when you woke up, I guess, you know, from the, the psychosis that you were experiencing and you were walking the hall, you talked to the talk to the nurse, ask them, where am I? 
first of all, they must have had to have been shocked because, you know, you were completely different than you were the day before. And then, but secondly, I guess I'm curious, like in that moment, like what, uh, did you have a desire for, to, to consume an alcoholic beverage or was there that desire for alcohol? Have you had that desire since you've kind of woken up from that state or did the Lord completely re remove that from you? That's a really good question. Uh, the answer is he removed it all. Um, first thing on my mind, by the way, was where do I get some food? I was hungry, but you know, when they, when they discharged me actually from the treatment center and now I had gone to a few AA meetings already and, um, you know, they wanted to prescribe me some anti-craving medication. I said, I, I said, no, I declined that I, I, you know, I have no desire and no craving whatsoever to drink. So God not only had, you know, healed me physically he had taken away he had lifted those that addiction compulsion the obsession the desire it all just gone away and not only that you after i got out of there i saw a number of different doctors um my liver prior to going down for the count my liver enzymes were at a point where i the doctors were telling me joe you're causing irreversible damage to your liver irreversible permanent damage. Well, they did blood work on me soon after I got out of there and pointed out to me that, Joe, I've never seen anything like this. Your liver enzymes are perfectly normal. Your liver function is perfectly normal. Wow. Now, the second question, kind of as a follow-up from everything you just shared, too. So in that, you know, you Nicole calls you while you're in this treatment center, says, I'm moving out. But here you are right now, Nicole, or sitting right next to Joe. You're sharing this story. This is the second time. Uh, mm -hmm. you, the first time there was a divorce, you came back. Then this time you're like, I just can't do it anymore. So what made you come back the third time? Well, I realized, you know, we both took time apart. And he was very respectful of me. You know, what had happened, essentially, he, he knew. And, and when I had left, um, I just was taking time for me and kind of reflecting on everything and sort of on a different path, you know? And um, he um, was working on himself and kind of re rebuilding himself as, as a new man. You know, he was doing different things in the community and um, he was attending church often and spending more time with his children. So it was just, he was developing more of a rich, fulfilling life, and and I was just kind of carrying on and out there and dating. But it just, uh, I got to a point where I was just like, oh my gosh, my heart still. I had a lot of alone time, and during that time, I would always think of Joe. I was just still consumed with thoughts of him and missing him terribly. Even though yes, we're divorced, and I know what has happened. Oh my goodness. Would it be such a huge risk to get back involved with him? But I was just still like in love with him. I really was. I was just so upset at first and devastated. And I felt so abandoned, pushed away. And um, I felt like he completely neglected the marriage because of what he did. Um, so, you know, I just was trying to process everything more. 
and forgive and kind of, you know, move forward in a different light. And I realized he was working on himself um, and, and I was having my own time and everything, but I just, I got the courage one day to, you know, call him and ask if I could come by the house. So our house and, um, you know, he, that was okay. So I, I went over and that was a huge, like heartfelt moment in time for me. And I thought as I was on my way there, you know, I can either make a complete fool of myself or maybe this will be a good thing. I, I don't know, but I'm going to take a risk and let him know really how I've been feeling, what I've been feeling, and here goes. So, you know, I was there that day and I shared with him everything that was on my heart and he, he was very receptive, but he did let me know that he started dating and it was about two months into dating this one girl. So they had been consistently seeing each other. I didn't know the dynamic between the two and, you know, if he truly cared for her and how things were. So I, as soon as I found out that information, I just felt like really even more upset and um, I just so awkward being there. I was like, okay, I, I think I need to go now. But he did walk me outside, um, you know, close to my car. And we, we stood there some distance between the two of us, but yet close enough. Um, and it was a beautiful evening out. The sun, you know, was setting and there were people in the neighborhood walking around and it's a little bit noisy, but like all of that just kind of went away and we were just so focused on each other. And we just were gazing into each other's eyes for a few minutes, something out of like a romance movie, honestly. Very romantic. <laughs> and you could tell even though no words were spoken at that moment, that there was a lot of still love left and adoration and care for one another. Another, So I left that day, drove away, hysterically crying, very dramatic. Then he ended up reaching out about a week later and he um, wanted me to come by his new office. He had switched to a new financial firm and was like, you know, I'd, I'd love to have you bring your papers over and maybe you can discuss your accounts and I don't know, maybe you'd consider moving your money. Very, was, very romantic. I've always trusted him with money. <laughs> He's a great financial advisor. So I took him up on it and showed up there at his new place. And it was, you know, just immediate attraction once again. And after we wrapped up business, we had dinner together and had a really amazing conversation. And that was pretty much it. I moved in a couple weeks, moved back in a couple weeks later. And then months down the road in March, 2012, 2022, right? Yeah. Yes. That's right. We got married again for the third time. Now, just to, uh, to, to also put a little cherry on that. Um, I had, you know, through the 12 steps, I had, not only transformed, I'm, I'm now going to mass every Sunday. Um, I'm, you know, embracing my the church of my my birth, uh, and I am just thirsting for more and for more. And, um, you know, when Nicole and I came back together again, um, she saw me going off to mass. And she wanted to go with, and Nicole is by by the way one of the most spiritual people I ever have ever met. 
but she had never been baptized, even though her parents were Catholic. For whatever reason, they chose not to baptize her or her sister. So long story short, you know, she's now going to Mass, and it was kind of a Holy Spirit moment. It was, uh, we were at St. Patrick's here in Palm Beach Gardens, and our pastor, Father Aiden, brought up a, during the, you know, actual mass, brought up a family that was going to be back with a little child that was going to be baptized right after mass, we brought the family up in front of the entire congregation, gave them a blessing, and Nicole, the tears just started streaming down her face, and she said, turned to me and said, I want to be baptized, and I want to be Catholic, and I want to be baptized right here, <laughs> and from there, she enrolled in RCIA, completed the program. I actually went through it with her because I needed a, a refresher on my faith. Um, and, you know, grace of God, she was baptized and confirmed um, this past Easter vigil. And we now stand, because our faith is so important to us, um, we did follow finally uh, for an annulment petition from my very first marriage, um, which is in, we believe, the final stages right now with the tribunal here in our diocese. And uh, God willing, very soon we'll, we'll have our third marriage convalidated in Catholic Church. Well, it's a beautiful uh, story of grace, of, of coming back to the Lord, coming back to one another, of how love conquers all things. And uh, yeah, so thanks so much for sharing that. And um, I guess too, you know, thinking about alcohol and kind of the role it's played in your life and your marriage and, and such. So are, are you an alcohol-free couple now? Uh, obviously in yeah. a, a sobriety, like in your marriage, like do you join him in that complete sobriety? I do. I've never been, a, or I never was a drinker really, you know, I just because of my size and I actually have a, um, a kidney condition, um, that really, if I am to drink, it can throw off my levels of potassium and magnesium. So, um, you know how, like a lot of people drink to like, you know, kick the anxiety, like drinking for me, like kicks in the anxiety because of like what it can do to me with my levels. So anyhow, um, yeah, I don't drink. And I haven't had a drink in a couple of years, actually. So we go out and actually dinners out are a lot less expensive because <laughs> there's no alcohol. So, yeah, I mean, it, it works beautifully. And, and never do I think, oh, my goodness, you know, he's going to fall back and like go back, resort back to drinking. It just never crosses my mind. It never crosses my mind. I just I have so much faith in him and I just I, He's completely transformed in such an amazing, amazing way that um, it just, he's an incredible man. Father, if you don't mind that, you're probably pressed for time, but if it's okay, I'd like to bring it back to Father Michael. For yeah, sure. So um, I was going to maybe ask a question and maybe that's uh, going to lead to, to it, but you know, this is a miracle, right? So we talk about miracles as instantaneous, long-lasting, unexplainable. So it seems instantaneously you're cured of alcoholism, that uh, you it's unexplainable, like they don't know. Most people don't come back, you know, from 80% don't come back from, from what you experience. So um, 
so it seems like it would meet the conditions of a miracle. Do you know like why the miracle took place? Like, was there somebody praying through Blessed Michael's intercession or was someone praying the rosary for you or, or do you, or was it just God acting in a very powerful way? The, here's what we believe happened. So while I was going through my institutional odyssey, I have an aunt who's a McGibbon. Um, she is the youngest of my father's siblings. And she and I have always had a certain connection. Um, anyway, Aunt Jerry was also a nurse. So when I was going from hospital to hospital, treatment to treatment, you know, getting worse and worse and worse, and Jerry was acting as my advocate, and she was speaking to all the doctors and then translating in English to told my family what was really going on. Jerry is also a very devout Catholic woman, and, and we, what happened is once I got out of the treatment center, Jerry and I started doing a weekly phone call um, every Saturday morning. Initially, she was just checking in, right? But to this day, you know, three years later, um, she and I still speak every Saturday. And they're usually some pretty long conversations. But anyway, at that time, you know, as part of my transformation and part of my sobriety and recovery, I wanted to serve others. And it finally dawned on me, well, wait a minute. Well, I'm now back going to church, why don't I become a Knights of Columbus? It is my relative who founded the Knights. And then, so, you know, before I went to my first Knights of Columbus meeting, I said, I better learn more about this guy. And I came to learn that he had recently been beatified. It was on the path to sainthood, one miracle away. So anyway, so I joined the Knights on a Thursday night. That following Three days or two days later, it's Saturday morning, and I have my call with Aunt Jerry. And I say to her, Jerry, I think you'll be excited about this. I joined the Knights of Columbus. And instead of being excited, she starts crying. Like, oh, my goodness, what what I do now? She, and she said, Joey, when you were sick, I was praying to God. I was praying to Jesus. I was praying to Mary. I was praying to anyone who would listen. But I fervently prayed to Father Michael, our relative. Hmm. In that moment, everything came together. Because once I got out and learned that I had indeed experienced a medical miracle with no explanation, uh, I often wondered why. Why did God choose to reach down save me. I certainly wasn't the only sinner. I wasn't the only one suffering from psychosis, dementia, alcoholism. Why did he choose to? And I think maybe we found our answer in learning that Jerry was praying fervently to Father Michael to intercede. Yeah. <laughs> now, and the cause for canonization uh, and that process uh, has your story been submitted as a potential miracle, or is it not as maybe a drastic of a miracle as they might be looking for? 
here's my understanding of the process. And I don't want to, you know, I'm not speaking on behalf of the Father McGivney Guild or Knights of Columbus. Um, Father McGivney was beatified October 31st of 2020, uh, a little bit before, two months before I actually went down and started my physical or odyssey. Um, soon, as I understand it, almost immediately thereafter, they presented a case for a second miracle. Mm. One that occurred sometime before. And as I understand the process at the Vatican is you, you know, once he became beatified, that opened the door for a second submission. And they only, you're only, they're only allowed to submit one at a time. So there is my understanding, there is a miracle at the Vatican today that we pray will be the one that the Vatican acknowledges and oh, blessed Michael will become Saint Michael. Yeah. The Knights of Columbus has documented my miracle in a number of different venues. Um, they did an article in Columbia Magazine, which is the monthly news magazine of the Knights. They've done a couple YouTube interviews and profiles. Um, the Father McGivney Pilgrimage Center, which is used to be known as the Father McGivney Museum, has done interviews with me. So mm -hmm. again, my words, not theirs. In the event that the miracle that sits at the Vatican today doesn't become the miracle he needs. In addition to mine, there are others. Father McGivney has proven to be a very powerful intercessor. Um, and that's part of the book, why we wrote this book, was number one, to raise awareness for the cause. Um, you know, we all, all often think, what if one person asked Father McGivney to intercede now? What if they learn of his power and learn of his path to sainthood? What if the next miracle happens? Mm -hmm. um, and then the other reason we wrote this book uh, really was through, you know, sharing our story of God's infinite power and love that people struggling with alcoholism and or addiction and their family members will find hope and maybe strength and courage to reach out and get get help. And then lastly, you know, we think it's just a beautiful story about how God, nothing is impossible for God. In this modern day world, I, you know, I know many people think of you know, miracles in the Gospels, you know, 2,000 years ago, but God's not done. <laughs> and I'm living example that he still, still has miracles. Hmm. Give all of us. So. Yeah, that's incredible. And this is all related in your book, You're a Miracle, which you are, Joe McGivney, a miracle, that's for sure, with your story. I think, too, it's a nice little title. It's a reminder to all of us that we are miracles, that God is working in our lives, and that's miraculous in and of itself, too. So so it's kind of like a, a double double meeting, I would think, there with the title. So your book, Your Miracle, is available. You can get it on Amazon.com or wherever you buy books. And uh, do, do you have a website or any place you refer people to learn more about you and your work or Bless Michael? Yes, we do. Uh, if you go to joemcgivney.com, pretty simple, just joemcgivney, no dots, no dashes, just joemcgivney.com. Um, you can learn more about our story. There's a link to buy the book, but um, 
there's also a place there to a, for a link to the YouTube videos that Knights have created um, about my miracle. And then also, you know, I love to tell this story. So if there's anyone who, you know, is interested in having me share, me and Nicole, share our story at a parish event, a conference, uh, reach out to us and see what we can to make it happen. That's wonderful. <laughs> it's great to talk to a relative of uh, Blessed Michael McGivney. Great to hear how he interceded for you and to really see the fruit of his prayers, the fact that you and your wife are sitting next to each other today and that you've been completely cured uh, really from alcoholism, which is a, a, a great feat. And uh, God truly has accomplished this miracle for you. So thanks so much, Joe and Nicole, for joining me today. Thank, Thank you, you so Father. Much, Father. Appreciate it. God bless you. Thank you. If you liked today's episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you're listening. And don't forget to stay up to date with what Father Edward is doing by following him on Facebook, X, or Instagram at the handle at FREdwardLooney. Thanks for listening, and please join Father Edward again next time for another inspiring conversation.